Beloved, what does the New Testament church look like? When you look at the New Testament church, uh, there is a beauty and there is a simplicity. When you consider the New Testament church, it's what we at Santan Bible Church, it's what any Bible-believing church would aspire to, to be modeled after the church as God lays it out in the New Testament. And what happened, though, was as time went on, when the apostles passed from the scene, uh, the early churches began to drift away from the doctrine and practice that they had understood, and the church shifted away from this beautiful simplicity to kind of a confused, complex, and convoluted system. And we can ask the question, why, why is that? What happened? And there are many reasons, I suppose. One, to be sure, was persecution set in early. Uh, the, emperor, the Roman Emperor Nero in AD 64 began his first of what would be a uh, 10-wave persecution from 10 Roman emperor, emperors that persecuted Christians in AD 64. Some of you may remember the emperor uh, Nero would light his garden at night with Christians that were impaled on sticks and he would light them afire. And it went on all the way from AD 64 to the 10th and last of these Roman emperors who actually was the worst persecutor of the church, Diocletian in AD 305. Now, to be sure, when we look at persecution, there are some positive blessings that God will even bring from persecution. Unity. It's very difficult to argue over the color of the carpet when you're fighting for your life. Purity. Uh, the kind of easy believism, and it's very difficult and a challenge for someone to play a Christian when their life is at stake. The testimony of the martyrs, many others as well. So there are, are certainly blessings that come, can come from persecution, but there are negative consequences as well. Some of the fanaticism of some of the monks and the ascetic rituals that came in. Baptismal regeneration, and it even was what led into the error of child and infant baptism. If your children or babies are dying and there's a misunderstanding of God's work, then that can, is basically what led into that confusion and hierarchy and the church polity was also another area that was hit during this time when people are under severe duress many people want to be told what to do and so that led into that dimension now the persecution led to this confusion and convoluted nature but there was another aspect as well after diocletian the next significant roman emperor was constantine which many historians call Constantine the Great. And some of you may remember that actually Constantine at one point professed to be a Christian. As to whether or not he truly was is certainly subject to debate. But what he did was he made Christianity the state church. And actually, the, the damage of that actually surpassed the damage of even the persecution. And the simplicity faded into even more a heavenly organized, convoluted, and confused church there was a shift of emphasis on the purity of the church to power and even believers baptism lord's supper ministry the role of the local pastor and the local elders began to be compromised and even the relationship between the pastor and elders and the entire church and the christians as well was 
compromised. This is part of what took place. There were additional offices that were created. There were bishops and archbishops that rose up in power over the local churches and the local church pastors and elders. And eventually it was the fodder from which came the pope. In 381, at the Council of Constantinople, where Christians gathered together to defend biblical truth, especially around the nature of Christ, there were five prominent cities, five bishops from cities, from Rome, Alexandria, Antioch, Constantinople, and Jerusalem, that kind of rose in power over the other bishops and other cities that had come in. And then in AD 451, at the Council of Chalcedon, the bishop from Rome, Leo I, actually rose up in complete prominence. And what happened was because Rome was the political capital of the emperor of the empire at that time, that was why it rose to that. And Leo I, the bishop of Rome, claimed authority for Rome over the church on the basis of the imagined succession from Peter. Rome did fall politically in AD 476 in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 2 verses 33 and 41 but make no mistake the influence and the effect continued on and in fact it was Gregory the first who Roman Catholic historians call Gregory the Great that in AD 590 had was the first man to have the audacity to say that I am Christ's vicar on earth I am Papa I am father I am Pope Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Our passage this morning are verses 11 through 13 of Ephesians chapter 4. And what we have in Ephesians 4 is God is communicating through the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus and to all Christians in any land, in any language, at any point in time of the gift of the body of Christ, of the church universal and the local body of Christ. And in particular, in verses 11 through 13, God brings out gifts that he gives to the church. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we remember that there are really four chapters that we can go to that give the best detail about gifts. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, and Ephesians 4. In Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, that's where you have the longer list of gifts. The list of gifts that Paul gives in Romans 12 are gifts that are more regular and continuing on even to this day. In 1 Corinthians 12, at that point, this was an earlier epistle, and Paul focused more on transitional gifts and revelatory gifts that were temporary at that time as God was giving the New Testament. If you were here last week, you may remember that in 1 Peter 4, there's actually a singular gift, and a better way to even look at it would be giftedness, that each Christian is a masterpiece, a magnum opus, which, by the way, the plural for magnum opus, thank you, Ron Laban, is magna opera, uh, if you were here last week as well, but each Christian individual is a magnum opus, a masterpiece painted by God with the different elements of the gifts that are even listed, the 19 or 20 that are in these different chapters. Now, what we see in Ephesians 4 is the gift of leadership that God gives to the church. Beloved, follow along as I read, beginning in verse 11, and I'm going to read to verse 16 to get the thrust of the end of this section that we have here. Ephesians 4 and verse 11. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. This is the word of God, beloved, that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Now, beloved, what we see here is we see really twofold. In verse 11, we see God's provision of the gift of leaders to the church. And then in verses 12 and 13, we see God's purpose of the gifts of leaders, the gift of leaders to the church. And this is a reminder to us that God has given us, God gives us gifts so that we don't merely consume, but rather each and every part, every joint, every ligament, each individual part must contribute for the proper growth, development, and operation of the body. And what he brings out here is what is done for the saints and what is done by the saints. So let's take a look at the first element, which is God's provision of gift of leaders to the church. This picks up what we saw back in verse 7. In verse 7, you'll remember, Paul there said that to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So there he's bringing out that there is this diversity. There are many members in the body, but to each an individual part, there's a unity in this diversity and each and every part, grace and giftedness is giving. And then in verses eight through 10, he had this brief interruption in his mind before he picks up again this aspect of gift. And again, what he's doing here is he's focusing on the particular gift of leaders that God gives to the church. It says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. Now, the list here is not so much gifts given to the people of the church, but people given as gifts to the church. And what we see here in verse 11 is there are two foundational gifts and there are three continual gifts. He first focuses on the extraordinary and temporary before he moves to the ordinary and ongoing. So the first two, the apostles and prophets, are foundational, or extraordinary and temporary. The point being they're not repeatable. They are not to be continual. He gave some as apostles. Uh, apostles, a, a sent one, a messenger, a representative. An apostle was a person that was sent by someone. In Scripture, the apostles were sent by God. There's even one place where it talks about an apostle being sent by a church. Now, when you think of the apostles, we should think of the 12 apostles, the apostles with, including Matthias, who was picked as a replacement divinely by God in Acts chapter 1 to replace Judas, and then Paul, as the unique apostle to the Gentiles, as the 13th apostle. 
Now, again, there were even in the New Testament a couple instances where messengers were sent by churches using the same word, but you could think of that as kind of lowercase apostles. The apostles that Paul is talking about here are the 12 plus Paul, 13 apostles, the capital A apostles that God had established. Um, For example, the Jewish Mishnah says the one sent by the man is as the man himself. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 13, when Luke records Jesus choosing, selecting his apostles in Luke 6, 13, it says he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them whom he also named as apostles. Now, when we think of apostles, the capital A apostles of those 13 men, there's at least three aspects of them. We could say three requirements that were common for all of them. Each of them were selected by Christ or selected by God. Each of those apostles saw the risen Christ, and each of those apostles as a representative with the full authority of the one who sent them demonstrated the signs and the miracles and the wonders that God had put in place. He had done that type of situation in the Old Testament at the time of Moses and Joshua and Elisha and Elisha. In other words, when God was giving what we would call the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, in each of those two phases to indicate that new revelation is coming, and to authenticate the message and to authenticate the messenger, he accompanied that by signs and wonders. Again, with Moses, Joshua, Elisha, and Elisha. And even more so in the case of Christ and the apostles. That's why the apostle Paul, when he was writing to the church in Corinth, his second biblical letter in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, said, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So that is what was characteristic of all the apostles. Now, we just zeroed in and focused on the apostles. Let's telescope back out and look at all five of these people that are given as gifts. All five of these offices, all five of these gifts behind these kind of men are word-based gifts. They are teaching gifts. For example, even when we think of this first one, we're looking at apostles, In Mark chapter 3, Mark's capturing of that initial time of Christ choosing his 12 men. In Mark 3, verse 14, Mark writes, Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So the first and fundamental responsibility and ministry of an apostle was to preach and was to teach, was to bring and deliver the word of God. Now, even here in Ephesians, as we're looking at the apostles, and even the apostles and the prophets joined together, we we see them coupled together, joined together throughout the New Testament, and we've already seen it twice in Ephesians. In Ephesians 2.20, there Paul wrote about the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, Paul described the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. So beloved, the point is both apostles and prophets are teaching offices. They are instruments of divine revelation. And 
We can even think of, when we think of prophet, we can think of the word prophet, both the Hebrew verb and the Greek verb form of uh, to prophesy, both mean to proclaim, to call out, to declare. And the purpose of even the prophets was similar to the main purpose of the apostles. In 1 Corinthians 14, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. One who prophesies edifies the church. Beloved, that's the purpose and function of a prophet. It's a ministry of the word. And that even fits in perfectly well when one thinks of, well, what's the role, what's the function of a pastor, which we'll come to in a bit. Well, a pastor is to edify, to, is to exhort, and is to console the sheep in the flock. But we're still here in this foundational aspect, this extraordinary and temporary nature. This is part of the transition from the old to the new, from the old covenant to the new covenant, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And we know there are many prophets in the Old Testament, prophets who we know their names and many prophets who we didn't know their names. In Luke 11, Jesus recorded from Abel to Zechariah. So from godly Abel, the son of Adam and Eve, he was the first prophet, according to Jesus, all the way to Zechariah, which is in the Hebrew canon of Scripture, the Hebrew order of the books of the Old Testament. Zechariah's murder was the last that was recorded in the Hebrew Old Testament. But what about the New Testament? And the point here is there were many prophets in the New Testament. Only a few are named. For example, Agabus in Acts 11 and Acts 21 is named. Or Judas and Silas. In Acts 15, verse 32, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, watch this, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. What was that? I, was, I looked over at my brother Gary with that one, with a lengthy message. But be that as it may, we'll move on as much as I may wish to dwell on that. Beloved, what we have here is, again, this is a transitional period. As Paul is writing Ephesians, what happened is as God was giving the New Testament, as the New Testament documents, the Gospels, the letters, the Revelation of John were being written, as they were being written and disseminated, the office of prophet was no longer necessary. But in the transitional period, it was necessary. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones had this great words and statement that brings us into and makes us imagine ourselves in that time period to help us understand this transitional dynamic. This is what the doctor said. Try to imagine our position if we did not possess these New Testament epistles, but the Old Testament only. That was the position of the early church. Truth was imparted to it primarily by the teaching and preaching of the apostles, but that was supplemented by the teaching of the prophets to whom truth was given, and also the ability to speak it with clarity and power in the demonstration and authority of the Spirit. Hence, in the pastoral epistles, which apply to a later stage in the history of the church, when things had become more settled and fixed, there's no mention of the prophets. It's clear even by then the office of prophet was no longer necessary, and the call was for teachers and pastors and others to expound the scriptures and to convey the knowledge of the truth, end quote. Now, beloved, there are some solid men that believe the gift of prophecy continues to this day. 
And I mean, solid men, men that understand that the signs and wonders and miracles and the revelatory gifts by nature, the supernatural ones, that they were only given to those very three specific periods of Moses and Joshua, Elisha and Elisha, and Christ and the apostles, and who understand that those gifts have ceased at this point because God accomplished what he had for them. So the men that would understand the gift of prophecy continuing to this day, understand it in the context of forth-telling rather than foretelling, rather than telling of the future. And I understand that. In other words, men that are gifted with the exposition and application of the word of God. But I don't think that really lines up here. When we look at the way Paul uses apostles and prophets joined together as the foundation in chapter 2 and even here as well and even when we think of the foundation we understand that when a foundation of a building is laid and when the building starts going up you don't mess around with the foundation you don't add something to it or for example in 1 Corinthians 13 verses 8 through 10 uh, I don't have time to fully uh, elaborate on these those verses but basically what Paul does there is he brings out three gifts tongues knowledge and prophecy in verses 8 through 10 and Paul makes a very clear distinction between tongues which will cease on their own at some point in time and knowledge and prophecy that when the perfect comes the perfect the knowledge and prophecy will be done away and I believe the perfect is the completion of the canon of scripture when the apostle John set down his quill on the Isle of Patmos, having written the book of Revelation, the canon was complete, the New Testament was written, the perfect had come, and knowledge and prophecy had been done away at that point. For example, in Revelation 22, verse 18, the last book of the Bible, the last book of the New Testament, both canonically, in other words, in order of how we have the books, and chronologically, the last book written, in chapter 22, verse 18, the last chapter of this last book, the Apostle John said, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. Also, it's interesting, John was an apostle and a prophet. In fact, all apostles were, by definition, prophets. But not all prophets were apostles. The list of apostles was 13. It was much more restrictive. And what's interesting, in the book of Revelation, multiple times John appeals to his credential as a prophet, but he never appeals to his credential as an apostle. From a human wisdom standpoint, we would think, well, why doesn't he go for the, you know, the biggest, you know, the, why doesn't he go for the PhD? Why, why does he talk about his masters, so to speak? Well, the reason why he did that, I think the reason why he appealed to the credential of the lesser rather than the greater, one aspect, one reason was to help us understand exactly what he said in verse 18 of 22, that the office of not just apostle, but the office of prophet is being closed at that point in time. The office is closed. Well, those are the foundational gifts, the gifts, the, the people that are the gifts to the church, which were foundational. Now we move to the continual. We move from the extraordinary and temporary to the ordinary and ongoing. And these are the leaders in the local church for the day-to-day -day building up of the church. These are men who exercise their giftedness so that others, so that everyone else, so that each individual part can exercise their giftedness and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers 
Now, the word evangelist, it's a noun form of, of course, the verb evan evangelize. Uh, the word evangelist appears only three times in noun form in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians 4, 11, also Acts 21, verse 8, you'll remember Philip the evangelist, Philip who was called the evangelist. And then in 2 Timothy 2, or something, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5, when the Apostle Paul tells Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. And even there, when Paul said that to Timothy, when Paul wrote that to Timothy in verse 5 of chapter 4, that is flowing from the one main central command that Paul had given Timothy in verse 2 of chapter 4, which is what? Preach the word. Preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist. Uh, the commentator Barclay said that evangelists are the rank-and-file missionaries of the church. Now, we know when we look at these gifts, we talked about this last week, that we, we, can't, we don't have the option to say, well, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I'm not going to evangelize. We know that's not the case. Every Christian has the responsibility, the privilege, and the duty to tell the good news. Now, every Christian is called to evangelize, but not every Christian is called to be a missionary in the strict sense of the word. So evangelists, pastors and teachers. It's interesting, we could think of the evangelist as the obstetrician. The obstetrician, the evangelist helps the baby Christian come into the world. And if the evangelist is the obstetrician, then the pastor is the pediatrician. The pastor takes the babe in Christ and feeds them the meat and the milk and tends to them and helps them to grow. It's interesting, if you have the New American Standard, you'll see the word pastor there in the New American Standard, that, that's the only place where you'll see the English word pastor in the entire Bible. And it comes from the same word that is most often translated as shepherd. And that's what a pastor is. A pastor is a shepherd. In the ESV, in the English Standard Version, it translates uh, for, for Ephesians 4.11 as shepherds and teachers. You don't find the word pastor, the English word pastor, in the ESV. In the King James Version, King James also translates it as pastor here only in the New Testament. And then seven times you'll see the word pastor in Jeremiah in the King James Version. But I love, I love going to Acts 20. I love going to Apostles Paul exhortation to the elders of the church in Ephesus, which he had given prior to writing this letter some years before. And I love what he says in verse 28 because it captures this dynamic of the pastor, of the elder as a shepherd. He said to them then, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood, to pastor the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I love the 19th century English pastor R.C. Chapman said, my business is to love others. My business is not to seek to make others love me. That's a pastor's heart. And I love what God told the nation of Israel in 
Jeremiah. Uh, to be sure, there are distinctions between the old and the new, but there's also tremendous continuity. And God told the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 3.15, I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. It's the same dynamic in the ministry of the word. Pastors and teachers and teachers. 1 Corinthians 12, 28, it's interesting in that other chapter again where Paul brings out the gifts. In verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. So he skipped over evangelists and pastors when he wrote to the church in Corinth. Or back in Acts 13, verse 1, good Dr. Luke wrote there, there were at Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers. Again, we see the prophets and teachers during this transitional time. To be sure, Acts is a very transitional book from the Gospels to the Epistles. 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest epistles. That's why you have this transition time where Paul, at that point, was still talking about the supernatural sign gifts and the office of prophet. But even in 2 Corinthians, by the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, in the verse we read before, chapter 12, verse 12, he speaks of the sign gifts of a true apostle in past tense. In the same way, the author of Hebrews speaks of them in past tense. In Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. This is the time of transition. Now, I have to say this. Some people, when we look at this pastors and teachers, you'll notice that the pastors and teachers, you don't see the some as before teachers, as you see in the ESV. Some good, solid people understand and look at this pastors and teachers and understand it as one office, as a pastor-teacher. Now, I'm going to get technical here for a moment and so put up with me but I'm doing it for a good reason one to understand this passage and I'm going to use an illustration that actually points to the deity of Jesus Christ now the point is in the Greek language when you would have this and literally what it says in the original text is the pastors and teachers and in the Greek language when you have the definite article and then noun one and noun two if three requirements are met then it means that noun one is noun two it's the exact same same item the three requirements is called the granville sharp rule the three requirements is if the nouns are personal it's not a thing in other words you can't say the desk and the chair that they're not the same thing it has to be human beings it has to be personal the second requirement is it has to be non-proper in other words, you can't say the Peter and Paul. It has to be people, but it has to be non-proper names. And then the third requirement for noun one to be absolutely identical to noun two is it has to be singular. For example, in Titus 2, verse 13, Paul there wrote to Titus that he is looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Literally, the great God and Savior. And so, the God and Savior, they are personal. It's not a thing. It's non-proper. It's not a name. And God and Savior are singular. So, according to the Granville Sharp rule, God and Savior, Christ Jesus, is exactly the same thing. Christ Jesus is God. He is Savior and He is God. He is the same. So, it, it supports the deity of our Lord. So that's the illustration. But now back to Ephesians 4, 11, uh, pastors and teachers. Uh, well, that's 
uh, personal, that's non-proper, but it's plural, it's not singular. So what that means is it, 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 it meets two of the three requirements. So the point here is that pastors and, and teachers are distinct, but very closely related. We could say it this way, pastors and teachers here are like conjoined twins. They are separate, but inseparable. There's much, much overlap. Uh, practically speaking, we could put it this way. All pastors teach. That's the one requirement that differentiates between the requirements of an elder, for example, and the qualification of a deacon. Many, many deacons, most, you know, many deacons can certainly teach, but that is a sine qua non requirement of an elder. So all pastors teach, but not all teachers are necessarily pastors. Now, to be sure, anyone that has a good, effective ministry of the word will have a shepherd's heart, but they not, might not be in the office or the official role of a pastor. And the environment here is, commentator Raymond said this about the environment of the evangelical world. He said this, the theological atmosphere of evangelicalism is saturated with a dense fog of uncertainty. Rough estimates as to what this or that passage means will not do. We need qualified expositors who will take the time and make the necessary sacrifices to do their homework well and bring clarity to the minds of God's people. And we can think of it this way. If you're going to the pharmacy to pick up some drugs to deal with a disease, do you want a pharmacist who uses his best guess? Do you want an architect who works with approximations to build your house or to build your office building? Would you allow a surgeon to operate on your beloved wife or your beloved child with a butter knife rather than a scalpel? Beloved, there is precision and there is clarity. There is training. That's why even when we read in Mark, when, in Mark 3, when Jesus selected the apostles, he selected them so that they would walk with him so that he could then send them out to preach and to teach. And there are 56 references in the gospels to Jesus teaching. Mark 1 verse 22, they, his audience, were amazed at his teaching for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Or the beautiful leadership development passage, 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. We're going to be so blessed because I'm going to give you five more names. On behalf of the elders, I'm going to give you five more names of godly men who are deacon qualified, who are serving for you to have a month to have fellowship with before we finally affirm them as deacons. 2 Timothy 2.2. 2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men. What? who will be able to teach others also. These are teaching gifts. These are teaching offices. And there is a great burden and responsibility and tremendous privilege. The great Scottish reformer John Knox described the consternation he would feel when it came time for him to preach. He said, when I was compelled to preach, I burst forth in abundant tears and retired to my room, refusing to come out. Bruce Thielman said this, The pulpit calls those anointed to it as the sea calls its sailors. Like the sea, it batters and bruises and does not rest. To preach, to really preach is to die a little at a time and to know each time you do it, you must do it again. End quote. 
There's a burden, and let me say, you must do it again. You get to do it again. It is a burden. It is the golden ball and chain. It is the greatest blessing. Beloved, we don't preach philosophy. We don't preach politics, economies, topics of the day. We don't preach morality, book reviews. We don't preach other men's messages. I, I study, I listen to sermons, I look for illustrations, word phraseology. J. Vernon McGee said, graze on many fields, but give your own milk. And we don't preach culture, we preach the word of God. Jeff Thomas, the Welsh pastor, said this in the context of men that would aspire to this ministry. You're right to stand in a pulpit before a church and teach them the word of God depends on you believing what scripture says. This is your great authority and without it you are nothing. We're not interested in listening to men who say, well, I think of God like this. I couldn't care less. Your only right to inform my mind when you stand in a pulpit is that you believe the word and you endorse this truth by a God-fearing life. Or back in Scripture, the entire text of Paul's giving his final great charge to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and with instruction. Beloved, this defines biblical leadership in one command, preach the word. And by the way, I'll briefly go over this when I present the names of the men. And we've been blessed to have it just recently with Justin. And what a blessing it was at the members meeting on Justin. Our newest elder that came up and the second he began preaching, that's an elder. That's a man who speaks with humility and with authority resting on the word of God. And what we understand is God exalts, God raises up and gifts men to these positions. It's our responsibility as a church to recognize and to affirm. And beloved, godly leadership is essential to growth. And teaching is the fundamental marrow of biblical leadership. Are we listening with all the ears of our heart is the question to us. So that's the provision. Secondly, beloved, is the purpose of God's gift of leaders to the body. And what we'll see here is there's an immediate purpose and there is an ultimate purpose. The first is the immediate purpose. And what we have in verse 12, we have three pregnant phrases for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Three pregnant phrases, supplying, serving, and strengthening, equipping, ministering, building. Uh, the first is supplying. And so this is the purpose statement for the leaders that are given to the church, for the equipping of the saints, of all the saints, of each one that we read back in verse 7. The word equip, it's a medical term. And it's used in the New Testament in two different ways. It's used once in the context of fixing, fixing something that's broken or mending something. For example, in Mark 1, verse 19, Jesus was going on a little farther and he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who, were all, who was also in the boat, mending their nets, mending, equipping their nets. The second way in which this word equipped is used in the New Testament is to complete and supply that which is lacking. 
1 Thessalonians 3, verse 10. We keep praying that, you may, that we may see your face and may complete what is lacking in your faith, that we may equip, supply what is lacking in your faith. Beloved, the pastor is like an armor bearer who waits on a Christian soldier in the morning of a great battle. He brings him or her her armor and helps him or her to put it on. And I say him or her, the her part of that I'm using in the metaphorical spiritual sense for the spiritual battle, if you allow me. A pastor is like an armor bearer, bringing the armor of God to bear and helping the Christian put it on. So there is a supplying, there is a serving. Next in verse 12, for the work of service. Now, beloved, please understand, this is a serving of the people, not the serving of the pastor. A massive error came from the smallest of things, a comma. In the King James Version, the King James Version says, for the perfecting, for the equipping of the saints, comma, for the work of the ministry, comma, for the edifying of the body. So the King James Version gives the idea that all three of those are all the responsibility of the pastors. But in other words, it's the professionals, it's the clergy that needs to be doing this work of service. For example, in the 1906 papal encyclical, the Amenter Nos, uh, issued by Pope Pius, this is what he said, and ju it just, I won't qualify it, just listen to this. The scripture teaches us, and the tradition of the fathers confirms the teaching that the church is the mystical body of Christ, ruled by the pastors and doctors. A society of men containing within its own fold chiefs who have full and perfect powers for ruling, teaching, and judging. It follows that the church is essentially an unequal society. That is, a society composing two categories of persons, the pastors and the flock. So distinct are these categories that the one duty of the multitude is to allow themselves to be led and like a docile flock to follow the pastors. Love of those words make me almost want to throw up. They don't taste good on my, in my mouth because they are so in defiance and contrary to the beautiful simplicity and purity and loving relationship and bi-directional iron sharpening iron dynamic of the body of Christ. This is not what God is teaching. And by the way, when you take a celibate group of unregenerate men leading a docile flock of sheep, what would we expect history to produce and the point is the comma does not belong there it is the equipping of the saints for no comma the work of service now you some of you students may be saying now I that sounds well and fine but I know in the Greek New Testament there is no punctuation so how do we know whether or not there should be a comma there that's a brilliant question the reason why we know that is because when we look at these three phrases, the little preposition in the New American Standard is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the attaining of unity. But the Greek prepositions is one preposition for the first one and then a different preposition for the latter two. It's pros uh, for the, or towards the equipping of the saints and then ace into the work of service, into the unity. So it's the Greek prepositions that tell us that that comma should not be there, that the first responsibility is the leaders and the second responsibility, privilege, is all the people. 
And again, it ties in with what we already saw back in verse 7. To each one of us, grace was given. So it lines up perfectly with the entire flow here. Supplying, serving, and lastly, strengthening or building. Beloved, understand this. God gifts us as a church in order that we would grow as a church, that we would spiritually grow as a church. He finishes verse 12, to the building up of the body of Christ. To the building up of the body of Christ, of everybody. Beloved, the, the church, this dynamic, it's not like a professional sports event where you have 20,000 spectators in the stands who desperately need exercise watching 20 people on the field that desperately need rest. <laughs> the, the church is not like the pastor driving a bus while all the passengers are slumbering behind him. Beloved Vance Habner said, Christianity began as a company of lay witnesses. It has become a professional pulpitism financed by lay spectators. Beloved, it is the entire body that builds and works and serves. I came across a church website this week that just reminded me how blessed we are at Santan Bible Church, how blessed I am to be in this church that I don't deserve. Uh, when we find the right man that will be, will join our staff as the associate pastor, whomever we might, might be, we'll have three paid uh, full-time, or we'll have three vocational pastors we have four lay elders when the five men whose names i will give you will be added to our existing list we'll have 16 deacons so three uh vocational uh pastors four lay elders 16 deacons and what brought this to my mind was again i came across a website this week where they have eight paid pastors one lay elder and zero deacons and I'm not saying this to kind of elevate ourselves or whatever. That was a personal blessing to me saying, you know what? I like our model better. I'm blessed by what God is doing in our work, in our midst. Beloved, this here is not the call of a privileged Hello. Hello. <laughs> we'll have our trusty you know, editor, editors and snippers to work through this. <laughs> Beloved, this is not the call of a privileged few. This is the privileged call of the many, the privileged call of each and every one. And a faithful pastor does not monopolize ministry. A faithful pastor mobilizes and multiplies ministries of the body. So that's the immediate purpose. And then finally, the ultimate purpose purpose in verse 13 and we have three more pregnant phrases that centered and bring out unity fidelity and maturity the unity at the beginning of verse 13 until we all attain until we all come to the unity of the faith the same unity that we've already been seeing in the previous verses here in ephesians of the faith the domain of teaching the body of doctrine the body of doctrine from cover to cover, which is at the center of the teaching ministry of evangelists, pastors, and teachers as well. And it's interesting, the indivisible, indissoluble, indestructible unity that God created. We were commanded by God that it must be maintained visibly back in verse 3. Here also we see that that unity God created is to be attained fully or completely 
in verse 13. Now, we might say, okay, what do you mean by fully or completely? That's a good question. Uh, we can kind of telescope out from this one and think, what's the one kind of high-level statement and command from God to us? Be holy even as I am holy. And in the same way, there are degrees of sanctity, degrees of sanctification within an individual Christian's life, so also there are degrees of unity as it's worked out in a local body and as it's worked out in our individual hearts in each and every one of us. So there's unity. There's also fidelity. The verse continues, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, the experiential knowledge, that the head understanding that works itself out in our behavior and our practice and our ownership, even as we would move from duty to delight in what God demands of us. And it's the same kind of knowledge that Paul wrote about back in chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Beloved, growth in knowledge is essential to growth in holiness. So there's unity, there's fidelity, lastly, there's maturity. And I'll cover it briefly here, but next Sunday when we look at verses 14 through 16, this whole aspect of maturity will blossom out even more. And he says to a mature man, a complete man, a perfect man, is another way that word can be translated. It's the same word that Paul uses in Colossians 1 verse 28, which was kind of the starting point verse a year and a half ago for the exciting uh, evolution and development of our men's ministry with the big breakfast and the table talks. Colossians 1, 28, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Every man mature, same word, in Christ. And this whole dimension of the contrast between maturity will be picked up next week in verse 14 where he draws a contrast between a mature man and children. And the point here in both this verse and in verse 14 is that all of us like Christians, we must begin to use a towel. We can't keep using a bib, so to speak. And parents, when we consider what diet, do you feed your children a diet of cotton candy, Captain Crunch, and ketchup? No, you want your child to grow in wisdom and in stature. You want chin up, back straight, chest out. That's the same kind of dynamic that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 20. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be babes, but in your thinking be mature, be complete, be perfect. That is what he's talking about here. And the goal that we have is when we appear before Jesus, we don't want to appear as stunted runts of redemption, but as mature and developed sons and daughters of God. That's why the author of Hebrews wrote to the Hebrews, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. And then finally at the end, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Three pregnant words, all three words speak of maturity. 
to the measure, the metron, the metric, the standard of Christ's gifts. The stature which can be age or height. In Luke chapter 2, verse 52, uh, we were told by good Dr. Luke that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And the fullness of Christ, the richness we have here in this text, ties back to chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, where Paul there said, the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. All of this is the maturity that he's talking about. And by the way, beloved, going back to where this chapter begins, this kind of maturity brings unity. The nature of our unity and the wonder of our diversity, our progress towards maturity kills any notion of superiority and produces humility in the child of God. And how can I become mature? I become mature through the Word of God, with the people of God, in the ministry of God. You know, it's interesting when you ask people, who are you? Very often people will respond by what they do. Well, I'm an engineer. I'm a lawyer. I'm a contractor. I'm a retail worker. And because we so often associate who we are by what we do, Beloved, how much more so in the church? What's your role? What's your ministry? What do you like to do? What fires your jets? What excites you? That's where you would get plugged in. And the gifts that God gives are given so that we would use them, not so that we would be known by them. If you're given the gift of evangelism, you evangelize. It's not because you want to be known as the evangelist. If I'm given the gift of being able to pastor and to shepherd, it's not so I'm known as the pastor. It's so that I pastor and shepherd. You can, you can call me Clay. I'm fine with Clay. You can call me, if, if by, by your tradition, you like Pastor Clay. Pa I mean, that, that's fine with me. I'm far more concerned with shepherding and pastoring, if I can make that a verb, than the title. And beloved, for each of us, we say, I can't do everything. But what I can do, according to God's word, I must do. And what I must do, by God's energizing power, I can do. And what I can do, by God's amazing grace, before the Lord, I will do. Beloved, please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the church. We thank you for our salvation. We thank you for the universal church. We thank you for this local church. Thank you, Lord God, for the godly men and women, for the entire church, the entire serving, spiritually growing church. Thank you for the leaders that you've gifted this church which, with, which are such a tremendous blessing and encouragement to me. And thank you for this great privilege, Lord Jesus, that we have to come to the communion table and remember what you did on our behalf for your glory for our eternal joy and even for the working of the ministry in your church right here right now and it's in your name that we pray and for your glory that we approach the table amen